Hello and welcome to another episode of Creedle. I'm joined today by my friend Casey Chalk, who is coming on the show once again to discuss yet another book he's written. This time, it is The Obscurity of Scripture. The subtitle is Disputing Sola Scriptura and the Protestant Notion of Biblical Perspicuity. Uh, the forward of this one is by Scott Hahn, so pretty pretty big get for your forward there, Casey. But welcome back to Creedle. Thank you so much for having me, Zach. It's a pleasure to be with you again. I'm definitely excited to talk through this this uh, this thing. We often talk about sola fide, and we talk less about clarity of scripture. But as you very capably are capably argue in your book, those two are very intertwined, and we we can't really talk about one without talking about the other. Uh, before we do that, though, uh, tell me how you do this because I feel like we had you on I don't know a a, a year ago to talk about your previous book, and here you are you've already cranked out another one, and this one is not about your you know personal experiences in Southeast Asia. Uh, and what you learned there. This is a you know 300-page, uh, very academic work that is heavily footnoted and dives deep into theology and philosophy and all these things. So how do you uh, how do you do it? Give me your give me your tips and tricks for for how to turn out a manuscript so quickly. <laughs> uh, the trick is to have an employer that sends you home and doesn't ask you to go into the office for months during the beginning of COVID. I actually wrote the manuscript for both of these books um, while I was home. Uh, hanging out with my family and, and having lots of great family time and then sneaking away during nap times and whatnot to do the research and write um, both the manuscript for The Persecuted, um, which came out at the end of uh, 2021, and then this one, which was just uh, on The Persecuted Scripture that was just published a couple of weeks ago. I love it. Well, I am very glad for you that you have an employer who does that. That sounds like a great a great tip. I'll have to talk to my employer and see if uh, see if they'd be on board for that as well. Um, if you want to go listen to my audience, if you want to go listen to Casey's previous appearance, I just looked it up. It was episode 97 of this podcast. It aired in January of 2022. Uh, and in it, uh, Casey joined me to talk about, uh, persecuted Christians in Muslim lands in Southeast Asia. Just some really, uh, really harrowing stories. As I read that, I learned so much about, uh, persecuted Christians in that part of the world and what they endure every day and how we should pray for them and how we can help them. So I definitely encourage you to check out, check out that one. That one, I think, was your first book ever, right, Casey? Your your inaugural foray into book publishing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, that one, it was very different than this. In that, um, that one, I I felt very much called by God to write it. I didn't, in, in some respects, I didn't necessarily want to write it. Um, it was going to be a very difficult topic to try and discuss these, yeah, really miserable stories of some of my closest friends while we were living overseas, and and, and just try to document as much of, um, the, the persecution, the violence, um, the mistreatment that they suffered, um, in the Muslim world and then in Southeast Asia and Thailand as well. Um, but I'm glad I did it. And, uh, and we're still seeing, uh, the fruits of that in, um, some, uh, in some of the, some of the things that are happening with some of those families and, and trying to get them out of, uh, of certainly of Pakistan, but even of Thailand too, so they can start their lives somewhere where they're able to practice their Catholic faith freely. Um, so prayers are definitely uh, still welcome for, for uh, the families, the D'Souza and Wilson families. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that things are happening and that your work is bearing fruit. And I'm glad you wrote it because like I said, I learned a, a ton uh, reading it. And speaking of learning a ton while reading, uh, I also learned a ton while reading your book on the obscurity of scripture. Now, um, I think you, you gave this sort of a cheeky name because the typical doctrine is known as the clarity of scripture or um, sometimes called the perspicuity of, of scripture, which is a, a bit more of a mouthful, meaning the same thing. Um, and that is a, a kind of, a, as you say in the book, a bedrock of Protestant theology. Um, in layman's terms, it means that uh, scripture is clear. The clarity of scripture it is clear to the layman's reading. When the layman reads uh, scripture, the Holy Spirit uh, reveals the meaning of scripture to the layman. Um, and from this doctrine flows basically every core tenet of Protestant theology, but especially Reformation, Reformation theology. And so um, we, we, we'll talk about this more, but uh, I think that you wrote this. You can, you can you know, back me up on this if this is right. I think you wrote this because we often talk about sola fide, right? Only faith, faith alone, the rallying cry of the Reformation. This was, this was you know, in, in Luther's own, by Luther's own admission, this was the core bedrock of everything he did and of what animated him is his core conviction that we are saved by faith alone, uh, completely independent of works. Uh, and so that really animated so much of the Reformation. But your point is that undergirding that belief is Luther's sort of interpretive paradigm that led him to come to that conclusion of sola fide. 
And that paradigm is really based on this doctrine of clarity of scripture. So that Luther, when he reads the scriptures, says, I come to a different conclusion from Holy Mother Church, and therefore uh, it is not Holy Mother Church, it is the whore of Babylon, and I'm the right one in interpreting this scripture. Um, so I guess, you know, do I have that right? Uh, and then maybe as a, as a bigger question to answer, uh, why write this book? What drove you to, to write this book while you're home alone in COVID? Um, you know, your employer gives you some time off. Uh, why write this book on the obscurity of scripture? So I would add one caveat to the definition that you provided, Zach, which I think for many Protestants is accurate, the way you described it. Um, I think that maybe some Protestants, especially those who are um, more inclined towards various um, traditions within the broad Reformed faith, um, Calvinists like Reformed Baptists, Presbyterians, even maybe a lot of Anglicans, they would you know, want to add a, a few little caveats to that definition. So for example, my own former um, Presbyterian tradition uh, the doctrine of perspicuity comes out of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a 17th century uh, creedal document published and promulgated by English Presbyterians. And um, I don't have that the, the the definition right in front of me, but the one I'm thing that they add right is now. they say that scripture. Oh, please, scripture is so clear that um, the uh, the learned and the unlearned, by using um, ordinary means should be able to understand what is necessary for salvation. So it's not necessarily that all of scripture is equally clear. Um, even I think a lot of Protestants, you know, they, they look at what St. Peter says in one of his epistles talking about how St. Paul, much of what he writes um, is difficult to understand. And is, uh, I forget the exact language that St. Peter uses, but you know, is twisted by, by certain men for their own destruction. So I think Protestants, a lot of Protestants would grant that some parts of scripture are, are harder to understand than others, but they would say at least, what is necessary for salvation um, is clearly taught so that if, um, if the Christian is um, uh, making use of the Holy Spirit um, and, uh, and the leading of the Holy Spirit and as well as ordinary means, and what ordinary means typically means uh, or is how it's defined is um, things like um, learning about Scripture in a, in a biblically-based church, hearing good biblical preaching, leveraging um, extra-biblical texts that are um, teaching biblical doctrine, right? So th think things like um, commentaries or even uh, church fathers, uh, major theologians that Protestants view as authoritative, that sort of thing. So th those are the ordinary means that would go into influencing that understanding of, of, of Scripture's teaching as it relates to justific justification by faith alone, salvation, et cetera. Yeah, I, I appreciate your caveat here. We certainly don't want to, you know, straw man. I certainly don't want to, I know you don't because you take great pains in your book to not do this. Don't want to straw man the, the Protestant position or the reform position. Uh, let me read, since you mentioned the Westminster Confession, this is section 1.7. All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some places of scripture or, or in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So exactly like you said, Casey, not everything is clear, but the things that are, are necessary for salvation are clear to the learned and the unlearned in due use of the ordinary means, presumably of their reason, uh, and they can attain a sufficient understanding of those for salvation. That's the Westminster Confession language. And then the passage in the Bible that you talked about from, from uh, Peter, uh, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, is talking about Paul, and he says, um, Paul talks about these same things in all his letters, but part of what he says is hard to understand. Some ignorant and unsteady people even destroy themselves by twisting what he said. They do the same thing with other scriptures, too. So, Going on uh, to the your other question about why I wrote this book, um, some of that gets into my own story, which I'm really, you know, be very happy to share, because, um, you know, Perspicuity really is very much uh, one of the main reasons that I became Catholic was uh, struggling over this doctrine and also realizing how essential it was to my own um, like entire belief system as a Protestant. Yeah. But also, I think what I'm trying to do here is, um, and I haven't in some of the interviews, um, I haven't, I haven't said this explicitly, so I, I really want to uh, nail nail down on this. Is that I'm I'm trying to do a couple different things in this book, and one of them is actually trying to persuade well, definitely Protestants and, and certainly Catholics who read it as well, that perspicuity is actually a much more important doctrine for them. It's more foundational. You use the word bedrock. That's, that's the word that I use in the book as well. It's more bedrock than really any other doctrine, yeah. um, which 
it, that's a controversial thing to argue because I, I'm, as a former Protestant, you know, most Protestants would be like, what, really, you're going to tell me what the most foundational thing is? Who are you speaking in the 21st century to tell me that sola fide or sola scriptura or something like that is not the most important Protestant doctrine? But really, I, that's one of the things I try to uh, outline, especially in the first half of this book, is why I think perspicuity is so deeply foundational. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Now, in the beginning of this book, you, um, you, you have a good introduction and you cite a bunch of people really on both sides, but mostly Protestant, um, who talk about how clear Scripture is. Your first words in the book, Scripture is clear, and then you say it is a statement often often offered as a preface by someone who's about to make a religious or theological claim. And so I've seen, I mean, just anecdotally, I've seen this so many times where someone says, Scripture is clear, this is what the resurrection is. Scripture is clear, the physical resurrection is real. Scripture is clear, the virgin birth is real. Uh, and so you're right, we do see this all the time. And so I guess uh, by, by way of sort of introducing this idea, even going back to the Westminster Confession claim, do you think it's true? Are you willing to concede that Scripture is clear on some respects, or do you think that that you know there's no sense in which we have sort of clarity of Scripture independent from the interpretive hermeneutic hermeneutical authority even of the Catholic Church? It's a really interesting question, especially because as I was doing my research for this and reading a lot of the church fathers, you can actually find various quotations from the church fathers. And I get into this in, in yeah. one of the chapters of the book. There are um, church fathers like Augustine and, and others that use that language. They'll talk about how scripture is clear on, on certain points. And Protestants love to cite those because it seems like, uh, you know, it's supporting their position. Yeah. What you typically find in when you read the broader context of those church fathers, and certainly when you read them, um, not just a relationship what they're talking about in regards to uh, scripture and, it, and its relative clarity, but how their broader hermeneutic for how they interpret scripture, you know, and and uh, and understand it in connection with ecclesial authority. Yeah, um, is that typically they they mean that scripture is clear in oftentimes in regards to like moral commands, which where there's not as much wiggle room. Right. Um, I would argue in the 21st century, even even here, we're encountering a lot of wiggle room. But you know, I, I can I can understand why. Augustine writing in the fourth and fifth century would say that, you know, scripture is clear when it says that thou shalt not murder, right? That's, that's pretty clear. You shouldn't murder people, right? We would, in a 21st century context, we might say though, well, I don't know. Is abortion murder? Is euthanasia murder? Right? So these things do get fairly complicated and Christians fall down in all kinds of places over that. So I, yeah, yes, I think that there are certain ways in which we could say certain parts of scripture can, you know, Maybe we could call them clear. Like, does scripture teach that God exists? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure you're going to find anybody to use this example. Like, with that. Yeah, the most, the, most, <laughs> the most foundational claim of all scripture is that God exists. And I think that we, I, I, would, say, I would say, yeah, scripture is pretty clear that God exists, right? Right. But if, you, but if then we then say, well, what is the nature of God? Is yes. God, um, is God three, three in one? Uh, what, what is the Divine relationship between persons and nature? University, right. Yeah. And then Im- immediately you start going in lots of different directions within yeah. um, various Christian traditions. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. How about the, specifically this Westminster Confession claim that it, it contains all things necessary for salvation? Uh, I'm, I'm actually, I don't, you know, I, I don't like uh, where that leads because that leads very quickly to Sola Scriptura. Um, but this idea that scripture is clear enough for someone in a remote jungle tribe in Southeast Asia, uh, you know, Papua New Guinea or something, they, f- they pick up the Bible and they start worshiping the one true God through the revelation that they hold in their hands, right? Do you think it's true that in, in some sense, the Westminster Confession is right about this, that it does in fact hold some kind of clarity that is necessary for salvation for those who believe? In and I actually, I talk about this in the book mm-hmm. in that when I argue that scripture is obscure, I'm not arguing that all of scripture and every single verse is obscure. Right. In in all Catholics, in the, the Catholic church as, as a magisterial authority has granted this because lots of Protestants believe the same exact thing as Catholics on lots of different points. Yep. The Trinity being one example, yep. um, Christ's divinity being yet another, right? So, um, a lot of Protestants came to that. Certainly a lot of Protestants come to those opinions more or less because they're formed in ecclesial communities that have a historic connection to the historic Catholic church. And so they're brought up learning the Nicene Creed and other um, sort of ancient Christian doctrines. But yeah, is it is it feasible that somebody could pick up the Bible having absolutely no access to any of that history, that tradition or context, and still get some understanding that Jesus is God 
um, and the means of salvation. Yeah, of, of course. Now, the, the problem is, is that they're probably going to go wrong on, on lots of issues and yep. they're going to need an, an instructor. And, uh, and also, and I, I talk about this in great detail in the book, they're also going to have absolutely no uh, confidence yes. that their interpretation is authoritative. Right. Right. It's just going to be their own personal opinion. Or if they and have if they confidence, there's no, uh, there's no well-placed confidence, right? They have, they're mis they have yeah, misplaced confidence. Yeah. That's right. And that's going to be especially difficult if they meet someone in the tribe in Papua New Guinea next door who's just read their Bible and come to a, a very alternative, um, irreconcilable opinion on scriptural interpretation, especially yeah. if it's something that's considered essential. Right. Yeah. Going to this example of, uh, you know, a, someone in Papua New Guinea who's never heard the gospel and and someone gives them the Bible and they it's in their language. So they take it you know, back to their um, village and they read it uh, and they through that encounter with God's word, they, they enter into a living relationship with God. It's certainly true. I, I agree with you that they could, they could come to some saving knowledge of God through that. Uh, and God's grace is operative in that. Uh, but they'll, they'll almost certainly err on very key matters of doctrine. Now that, that um, I, d I won't say that doesn't matter because it certainly matters, but that uh, is not something that, that, you know, that God's grace in offering salvation to this person can't overlook. Right. Uh, and so, but even so, even so, the grace that does that God does offer to this person is not some sort of um, it's not some sort of thing that's operative outside of the church. And I think this is a point that is at least implicit in your chapter about sort of um, scripture and interpreting scripture in the context of an ecclesial community, which we can come to we can come to later. That that is that is how scripture is truly uncovered. Uh, how we sort of uncover the key to the the meaning of scripture because it is often not plain. And even the plain passages of scripture have deeper meanings that are only uncovered in the context of that ecclesial community and in fact, tradition. Um, on this, uh, on this, this point about Protestantism, in what ways is this key doctrine of Protestantism of the Reformation linked to sola scriptura? How do we go from the clarity of scripture to only scripture? So Luther's protest against the Catholic Church is, is one that's ultimately based on authority. Um, he came to believe um, that the Catholic Church had forfeited its authority through its, its corruption um, and its uh, um, increasing uh, uh, departing from the Bible's teaching you know, over many centuries. And uh, and so he loc locates the authority for interpreting the Bible um, in in the the faith of the individual Christian, right? He argues this in in some of the most famous of his documents, like the Letter to the Christian Nobility and, and the Freedom of the Christian and whatnot. This idea that the, you know the Christian needs to be free in order to interpret the Bible, read the Bible, and interpret it on its own. And um, you really need perspicuity in order to do that. And the reason why is because if if we're going to affirm that the only um, infallible rule of faith, the only source of divine revelation that we can have confidence in as Christians is Holy Scripture, then you're going to need somebody that you need to have some way to actually interpret it. Because otherwise, what Scripture becomes is more or less this. this it, I compare it to like a it's a treasure chest, but you just have no key to open it. Right. Yep. So it's got all this good stuff in it. Tells us about God, how we're saved, how to make sense of the world. But there's no way to actually get access to that. So you need as a, within the Protestant paradigm, you need perspicuity to do that because otherwise you're gonna you need some kind of interpretive authority um, to to give you that right. So perspicuity within the Protestant paradigm basically serves as that key that opens it up and helps individual Christians to then to then be able to make certain claims about the Bible that ostensibly all uh, Christians of goodwill guided by the Holy Spirit will be able to assent to. Of course, the history of Protestantism doesn't work out like that at all, but um, that's at least the claim. So uh, if I understand what you're saying correctly, for us as Catholics, the church is that sort of interpretive key that unlocks things for us. Protestants who do not have, well, while they certainly, at least most of them would say, yeah, we, we recognize the church. It's not, it's not coterminous with the Catholic church, but they would say we recognize this sort of ecclesial idea of the church but it's not the interpretive holder of the key for us. It's a, you know, visible or invisible body of believers, et cetera. 
the real interpretive key is not really necessary because of the clarity of scripture, because it stands on its own as something that is clear as a rule of, of life for us. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And then when they will um, make arguments about how they have a very high view of the role of the church in the, um, in the interpretive process or the role of tradition in informing their interpretation of the Bible. Um, the problem with that though, is that it's, really the, it's the church that they decide is most aligned with scripture. And if they make a determination that the individual ecclesial community, whether it's an individual non-denominational Bible church or a very large denomination like the church of England or the Presbyterian church in America or something like that, then Protestantism by default tells them if the PCA or Anglicanism or Methodism, or whatever is no longer teaching biblical truth, then yeah, you, you need to leave. You either need to find some yeah. other ecclesial community that's doing that or you're going to have to find one, you're going to have to found one yourself. Yep. And that's more or less the history of Protestantism. Yeah. Um, on this point about the sort of interpretive key, cause I want to come back to this ecclesial, this, the sort of proliferation of ecclesial communities, like you just talked about, cause you have a whole, you really have a whole chapter on that. Um, on this interpretive key point. Uh, first of all, I really appreciate that you, you, you use the expression begging the question correctly, because I cannot tell you how many times I see people write begs the question and they really mean it raises the question. So they'll say, well, this this then begs the question, what is this? And no, that doesn't actually beg the question. You're, it just raises the question for you and then you're voicing the question. But you use it correctly. And you, you in talking about the, the sort of, um, I guess, uh, authority question begging, you talk about how this is really incoherent. The clarity of scripture is incoherent because, uh, when, especially when it arises from scripture itself. So in justifying the clarity of scripture, this doctrine, when a reformer cites scripture, it's like saying, you know, a stool is supported by its itself, but that's, you know, a stool cannot support itself. Like the seat of the stool cannot support itself. It has to be supported by the legs of the stool. Um, and then you cite, you cite Brian Cross, who's just an amazing thinker who, whose work really should get more attention. He, I think, founded Call to Communion, right? To whom you were a contributor for many years, Casey. Um, I know a personal friend of yours. You were one of, of the yours. original founders, yes. Okay. Personal friend of yours, I know. Uh, I have great respect for Brian Cross and definitely encourage people to look him up and he just has written amazing stuff. Um, but then Ed Fazer, uh, a philosophical hero of mine. I just really, really admire Ed Fazer's work. Uh, his, his work on the five proofs for the existence of God is one of the best top best, um, kind of arguments for theism I've ever read. Um, and you cite both of these guys in pointing out that, uh, as, as you say, as philosopher Ed Fazer observes, a book cannot interpret itself and it cannot even tell you what counts as part of the book for, even if there were some passage in it that said, here is a list of the materials that should be counted as part of the book. That would only raise the further question of how we can know that that passage should really be counted as part of the book. Obviously, to answer that question, we could not appeal to the book itself without begging the question. So uh, more, more, more points to Phaser now as well uh, for using the phrase properly, Casey. But I'm thinking here of, um, uh, of when we had some Mormon missionaries in our home, some LDS missionaries in our home last year, early last year. And, uh, you know, don't misunderstand me, listeners. I am not comparing um, uh, the, the key tenets of the LDS church to those of Protestantism. But I do think that in some respects, the kind of hermeneutic is the same, the interpretive hermeneutic for the scriptures. Um, because when they were talking to us about the Book of Mormon, uh, they were basically pointing to passages in the Book of Mormon that talk about the Book of Mormon as somehow proof that it was, in fact, true in the Word of God. And that's not how it works, right? Like you, you need some sort of some sort of external source to tell you what is what for you to embrace what as what. Uh, and so I think to to not do that, like you and Phaser and Brian Cross point out, indeed begs the question, which is is uh, is certainly a problem. Yeah, certainly you see this even in the Westminster Con Confession of Faith. I remember that when um, when I was really trying to compare. The Protestant and Catholic traditions and understand um, the different ways that they interpret scripture and looking at the proof texts and wondering to myself, well, I wonder how the Catholic tradition would interpret, you know, like certain Psalms that talk about how the, the, the word is a, is a light into my path. Um, I want Psalm 127 maybe, um, but there, you know, there's a bunch of these proof texts that, that Protestants cite. And I have a, an entire chapter going into that. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the problem that I encountered was that I realized that, well, one, the Catholic tradition interprets those verses very differently. So then you have to go, okay, well, how do we go about um, trying to determine which of those is 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 the best? Kind of again, it falls back on the individual person to more or less assert him or herself as being 
the authoritative interpreter of scripture. But even not just Catholicism, right? Orthodox are going to interpret that passage differently. And then various strands of Protestantism are going to interpret these proof texts that are offered for clarity in a different way than uh, a Calvinist would um, who um, more or less subscribes to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Right, right. Well, going on to this, uh, this, these sort of practical implications that you outline, and you have a question on this. Um, how has the perps- the perspicuity of Scripture, this this core adherence to this idea, how has this proliferated uh, in history? And when we look at the disastrous effects that it has had, how does that undercut the original claim of persecution? Of per- I keep try- I keep selling when I try to say this. I'll just say clarity because then I won't get tongue tied. How does that undercut the proliferation of denominations, for example? How does that undercut the clarity of Scripture? So when I was uh, a very um, serious, uh, and, and uh, I, like, I guess I, supp- I would have called myself a very pious um, Presbyterian and, and Reformed theologian, I could, I could understand the, the Catholic criticism of the proliferation of Protestant uh, denominations and individual churches. And I could, I could recognize that, 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 that there was a problem that Protestants need to, needed to make some sense of. Um, but what I was really surprised by when I, when I started to do a lot more in-depth research of the Reformation was that these were problems that the very first generation of reformers had. Um, and in great, in, in uh, to, to a great severity um, that, and I mean, I knew, for example, you know, even when I was a Protestant, yeah, I knew that, you know, Luther protested and, and he got support from um, one of the princes uh, in the Holy Roman Empire in order yep. to promote his particular belief systems. And I knew that he had um, that there were other people who were said, yeah, Luther, Luther's got it. We want to set up our own church as well. And there were some radical reformers uh, who did some you know, really crazy things in certain parts of Germany and were promoting polygamy and all kinds of other things. And, you know, Luther basically called on the princes of Germany to you need to crush these guys. Yeah. Right. These their interpretation is, is wrong. It needs to be destroyed. Right, so I, I knew about that, but I didn't recognize um, how many different interpretations there were of Scripture, even within the Protestant community in that first and second generation. So much so, you know, the cover of the book um, is uh, from is the Marburg Colloquy, which um, I definitely encourage readers to um, to, to study this event. Um, Luther and Zwingli and a number of other reformers from across Northern Europe. Uh, we're, we're called together um, by, uh, again, one of the German princes to more or less try to hash out their differences, particularly in regards to the doctrine of the Eucharist, because Luther and Zwingli just could not agree on whether um, the Eucharist was still in some way God being present um, in, uh, in, in the matter of, of the Eucharist or whether it was purely symbolic, as Zwingli argued. Right. And Luther basically just pounded his fist on the table and said he wasn't going to give any ground. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that he still believed that, that Christ was truly present. And uh, it, it was it was an irresolvable conflict that ultimately resulted in um, Luther, Zwingli basically saying, hey, well, you know, we're still brothers in Christ. Right. Luther saying, nope, <laughs> nope, we're not. You're you're here. Heretic Such a firebrand, Luther, man. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and. Certainly, once I started to read some of the Catholic apologists from that time time period, like Francis de Sales and Bellarmine, they're a little bit later. They're not, you know, uh, contemporaneous with uh, with Luther and Zwingli. But they are Counter Reformation guys, yeah. Yeah, and the that you know, I think I think it's de Sales has this one part where he talks about the number of different opinions he was able to find just on the Eucharist, and it was crazy. I mean, it was like forty or fifty different Protestant opinions about what the Eucharist exactly is, and we're talking about in like the seventeenth century. Um, so, you know, fast forward to our own day and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, now we're just so far beyond that. Yeah. Well, and, and this is especially poignant to me as a point. Uh, and I mean, I think it's, it, you lived it as well because you saw it when you were a Protestant, you saw it. I remember thinking, uh, as an Anglican, uh, I've shared this a little bit on my podcast before, but I don't know if the, my listeners would have heard, you know, the particular episode, but when I was a 15 year old, the Episcopal church that I was attending with my family was a conservative congregation, generally speaking. It got into a fight with the bishop of the Episcopal diocese, who was, theologically speaking, very progressive. And this this little kind of tiff uh, resulted in the bishop inhibiting my, at the time, pastor of that parish 
and, and, and inhibition is basically a, a banning from all uh, ecclesiastical participation in the life of the community, sacramental participation, and also basically like an ecclesiastical no contact order with a pastor's congregation. So it's a pretty serious, serious thing. Um, now it was it was done for my understanding today is there was wrongdoing on the part of my pastor, uh, and so it was it was. Uh, you know, there was some warrant, I think, to the ecclesial or the ecclesiastical penalty. Um, but I also think that that progressive bishop was really like jumping at the jumping at the chance to kind of lay the hammer down on on my my pastor and my congregation. Um, and then after that, my congregation ended up saying, OK, enough with this. We're fed up with this bishop. We're just going to leave the entire diocese because the Episcopal Church is going to hell in a handbag uh, they're getting more and more progressive. They're 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 ordaining all sorts of sexual deviance to the priesthood and to the uh, order of bishops. So we're just going to leave, and we did that. And then the congregation actually split in two. And so the you know the the half of the congregation that wanted to remain Episcopal literally left, and they left the building and they went to worship at a I don't know a Methodist church down the street I think. Um, and you know the half of the congregation that I was in stayed there. Uh, but I remember really being bitterly disappointed that that entire exchange disappointed in all the, the leaders of the, the actual church and the diocese above me disappointed in my fellow congregants. And so just saddened and frustrated by the way that the way that played out. And then looking around at the rest of, you know, Protestant Christianity and saying, this is actually not a terribly unique story. How many people do you, do you and I know who have lived through the breakdown of a congregation because of some disagreement over what a passage in scripture means or you know the the classic example is the the mauve carpeting right like this this half the congregation wanted mauve and this half wanted beige so they they split and they went across the street and now they have beige carpets in their church and that's only that's only slightly a joke right because it is true that congregations everywhere have split over you know relatively relatively small things um, that stem from a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of scripture or just differing interpretations of, of parts of scripture that would otherwise be, be clear, uh, in, in a, in a, if the doctrine of clarity were correct. And so, yeah, I think it's hard to, it's hard to look at the sum total of Protestantism and think, yeah, this, they're onto something here with this clarity stuff, because clearly, clearly, uh, it's all, it's all right there and everyone agrees on what's necessary. Now, I imagine there's a pretty simple objection to what I just said, which might be, well, yeah, of course, people are going to disagree on what the sort of more obscure passages mean. But the point is that there's disagreement on or there's agreement on the clarity. And this reminds me of something that was often said as an Anglican when I was an Anglican, because Anglicans love to say unity in essentials, diversity in non-essentials. So if you want to play a guitar on Sunday morning, and I like incense, that's fine. You can go to the guitar playing Anglican church and I'll go to the incense, or you know, we, we used to call it smells and bells Anglican church. You know, you I go high church, you go low church. Um, if in this is a more more much that that's a that's a kind of like aesthetic one, but a much more serious one is oh, you believe in the real presence, that's fine. You can come to the communion rail and you can believe in the real presence. You can even believe in the in the you can even believe in transubstantiation as an Anglican. Uh I don't, right? I believe in a sort of pneumatic presence or I'm really a Zwinglian at heart in my Eucharistic theology. And so I, that's what I believe when I go up, but we can go up together. We can, we can, you know, share, share at the altar rail. And so um, that very quickly even becomes a non-essential, right? And so there is no agreement even on what the essentials are when they say unity and essentials, diversity and non-essential. So it's a great slogan. It sounds wonderful. It's, it's great being like, yeah, we're, I'm an Anglican, so I just think that we all can get along we just need to be united in the essentials and diverse in the non-essentials, but there's no agreement on what the essentials are. And then you have the, 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 the proliferation of denominations all throughout. And even in the history of the Anglican communion that has prided itself on being a via media and really kind of a non-confrontational emphasis on unity rather than um, division, even in the Anglican communion, you find lots of examples, including one ongoing right now in North America of more and more division being introduced into the ecclesial communion. So that's how I would respond. But do you have anything anything additional to respond to a you know a hypothetical objector to my earlier claim or your earlier claim? No, I think that I think that pretty much covers it. I was gonna say though that just as you were talking about that experience in your own um, Episcopal Church of your youth, this gets into another chapter of my book where I talk about, well what what do you do 
if you're a Protestant and you've interpreted what Scripture te- clearly teaches as regards salvation, and you, you then you encounter other Protestants. Let's just leave other Catholics alone. We're talking just about Protestants. You ca- encounter another Protestant or Protestant tradition or, or church that teaches something different. What do you do with that? Because if it's clear, then certainly they're supposed to get it. And I remember, you know, experiencing this as a as a Calvinist and, and a very conservative Christian many times, where we go, oh, you just you just write those people off. Those are liberal Protestants. They don't really know their Bibles, right? Or you know, those are low church. Um, <laughs> I remember a lot of times it was a ba- it was Baptists. You know, like, oh, even those Baptists, they don't they don't really understand the history of the church. They don't understand tradition. Yeah. You know, they just they they have a they have a very um, almost like anti anti intellectual position towards scripture. I remember thinking those things and even saying those things. And, um, I think that it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a grace of God that eventually I, I was the God turned the light on for me. And I realized, well, wait a minute, they could say the same thing about me. What, what puts me in a different position than them? Why am I the authority? What, how, how do I have so much certitude about my own, um, scriptural interpretations and so easily write off the Methodists, the Baptists, the Anglicans, and all the other Protestants who are interpreting all these things, even on the essentials, um, that uh, that I that I disagree with, and to your point also about um, the you know we, we you know we can we can agree on the essentials, and I talk about this in the book right. There was a uh, the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy right. In order for a group of evangelicals to get together, I'm trying to remember was it in the late seventies maybe nineteen seventy seven. In order for them to get together and do that, they had to exclude quite a few um, Protestant theologians. And scholars, in order to do that, because if they tried to bring in everybody, then yeah, they never would have been able to even write that statement. And that's more or less how a lot of these Protestant, um, that wasn't a creedal document, but it was a document that a lot of prominent Protestant scholars and theologians and pastors signed on to at the time. Um, And there have been other things like that. But what what ends up happening is just a consistent narrowing down of who are my allies, because you're just realizing over time that you're a lot of the people you thought were allies, they don't actually agree with you. And I witnessed to your point about. Episcopalianism. I saw this in Presbyterianism um, in the whatever the you know the several years that I was a, a member of a PCA church. Um, the Federal Vision, um, which is something uh, fairly esoteric. I don't think any very few people outside of Presbyterianism in America oh, yeah. even know what that is. Um, but it was a movement within the P, within largely located just within the PCA, a denomination of three hundred thousand people in the United States, and it tore um, the PCA apart. Pastors left. They were pastors who were put on heresy trial for it, um, including Peter Lightheart. People probably are familiar with him because of his writing for First Things, um, and he's a pretty you know pretty prominent. He he was and on Douglas trial Wilson for heresy. Well. Within, I don't yes, think, I don't think he was on Wilson trial, well. but yeah, he's sort of in, involved in that whole thing and on the Lightheart side right. more or less. Right, and they were accused more or less of being crypto Catholics because yeah. some of their beliefs, particularly on you know baptism um, and the role of the covenant. Uh, were viewed as being too closely aligned with Catholicism. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, are, is there any doubt that these kinds of things are going to continue to uh, tear apart various Protestant communities? I mean, I, after 500 years, I mean, I don't know how you could think otherwise. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Now, I mean, lest, I, lest it sounds like um, Casey and I are just sort of Protestant bashing, I, I'm pretty sure Casey would agree with me when I say that uh, I owe a great debt to all of my formators as Protestants because uh, I was raised in a Protestant church. Uh, was you know my Sunday school teachers, my Bible teachers, my parents who who raised me and taught me the faith, uh, gave me all of the all of the seeds of faith uh, as they were growing in me as a as a young lad. And um, one thing I do appreciate about the doctrine of clarity of Scripture, although the doctrine is obviously all wrong, Casey. One thing I do appreciate is that it does it has the practical effect of encouraging people to study and know the scriptures. And uh, while it also has the practical effect of, of letting every man sort of become his own Pope and think that he has the authority to judge and interpret the scriptures, and that's bad, uh, I do appreciate that it helps people engage with the scriptures. Um, and I, I'm, I'm encouraged that in recent times, more and more Catholics, you know, Bible in a Year with Father Mike Schmitz, for example, the Great Adventure Bible Study Programs, um, I'm encouraged that more, more and more Catholics are sort of taking cues from our Protestant brothers and sisters and doing that because I think we should, we should engage with the scripture. We should use our God given reason to do that. We should pray for the illumination of the Holy spirit as we do. So we should do it obviously in the context of community, uh, using the church as the sort of interpretive and authoritative key to unlock the scriptures for us. Um, but the, the practical impulse to read the Bible and engage with it is really good. It's something that in a way, I think Protestantism sort of recovered 
from Judaism because that was the expectation, right? For a, for a young Jewish person, especially a boy, um, uh, pre-Messianic even, the expectation was you will, you will know the Torah back backwards and forwards. You will literally memorize the Torah by the, you know, your 12th birthday or whatever it was. Um, and so there was a very strong tradition, uh, in Judaism of really engaging with the, with the word of God. And I think we lost, and we lost that for, for, for several reasons sort of along the way after the fact, but I do appreciate that clarity of scripture sort of forced a reckoning in the Catholic world with that idea and helped us get back on track with engaging with the word of God. Obviously it needs to be just like it was in Judaism. It needs to be in the context of community and in the context of, in the case of Judaism, rabbinic tradition, or in the context of the Catholicism, apostolic succession, but it needs to be, it needs to happen in that context, but I, I still think it needs to happen. And so for my part, I would say that's the good, that's the good side of the clarity of scripture. That's, that's what God has done to the clarity of scripture um, in, in, you know, in the, in a good way. The rest of it, I think, has has allowed the devil to sow confusion and division, uh, where he he obviously um, should not be should not be doing those things. So, I mean, uh, do you have anything to add to that, or or a different take, perhaps? I think I would just add that um, I would footstomp what you said about indebtedness to my own Protestant upbringing, both as an evangelical and then more particularly as a Calvinist um, in my twenties. That I. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I learned uh, so, I, so much of what I know about scripture. Um, I, I credit to um, various pastors, youth group leaders, even my my seminary professors, and I thank them in the book for uh, giving, inspiring me, and, and giving that giving me that love for scripture. Um, so uh, yeah, and and you know, like what we've already talked about Zach, this idea that you know, I'm, I'm not arguing. I've seen some of this already on Twitter with some people who are criticizing my book. Um, they'll say like, you know, oh, this, you know, he's just claiming that scripture is 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 a is a terribly obscure. But don't don't worry, read Casey Chalk's book; it's really clear. And, what, what, you know, wasn't that, wasn't that like, James White's uh, take? Well, that's, yeah, he's one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There there've been some others too. Um, and that again, that's just that's just not, not what I'm arguing. I'm dealing with a particular Protestant doctrine. Your book is literally called the obscurity of scripture. To. So I don't know how they think you're arguing that it's clear. Right, I mean, as it's it seems pretty it seems pretty unambiguous to me. Your your central claim is in fact that it's not clear. Yeah, well, they're saying that, but I'm clear that I'm sort of like asserting myself as being the one who's clear. So it's like I'm sort of like competing with God, wow. um, which yeah, it, what what it take. is absurd. Um, obviously, lots of Christians, and I I say this explicitly in the book. Christians over two thousand centuries in various traditions have found great comfort and truth within scripture. Um, and, uh, and we shouldn't downplay that. Yeah. We shouldn't downplay the, the remarkable achievements of someone like people like the Wesley brothers, right? John and Charles and what they, what they did for Christianity. Um, and, uh, I don't know, it's, it's possible. There's a lot of Protestants that, you know, could still could be saints for what we'll have to talk, talk to God about that someday. But so my, my point is not that, um, the, the scriptures are so hopelessly obscure that nobody can benefit from them. It's that even for those who are benefiting from them greatly, as I did when I was a Protestant, that I, at some point I had to re- grapple with the fact that I didn't actually have confidence that my interpretation was authoritative. And then I was, you know, forced back, forced into a position where I was more or less on my own. I like, you know, you mentioned earlier, Zach, you said being your own Pope, I realized that that was going to be, if I was going to remain a Protestant, I was more or less having to come to terms with the fact that I was a, a magisterium unto myself. That just yep. did not, that, di- that didn't, it didn't make any sense from a philosophical or logical perspective. Certainly didn't make sense from what I knew about the history of Christianity. Um, and so I needed uh, an, an authoritative in- interpreter. Of course, then this is what I try to get into in a, in a different part of the book. Um, but then how do we go about identifying that, right? In a way that, again, isn't referential, isn't self-referential to one's personal interpretation of scripture. The Catholic Church actually has a way of doing that, which <clears throat> doesn't require doing that, which is the motives of credibility, um, which is, you know, we could do an entire podcast on that in and of yeah. itself, but the the, the brief version would be that there are these various proofs that can be um, accessed by human reason. Um, things like uh, the the history of the Catholic Church, its holiness, the holiness of its saints, um, the miracles that have been performed, these sorts of things, which we can go, we can examine them, we can see that they are substantiated, they're credible. 
um, and they lend uh, authority to the Catholic Church and her claims, so much so that eventually I realized, okay, I don't think I have any good claim to being a magisterium unto myself, but certainly the Catholic Church has at least a claim that's worthy of investigating. And I think that's what I'm trying to do is encourage my Protestant brothers and sisters who read this book to at least be willing to consider the claims, to go and look and, and examine the lives of the saints, the right Butler's Lives of Saints. What a fantastic book. Go read that and 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 get a, a feel for like this the great sanctity that's existed in the Catholic Church. That's unparalleled. There's nothing like it in any other Christian tradition. Um, or uh, yeah, there's there's lots of motives of credibility. And uh, like I said, I would I would be happy to come on and talk about it in the future podcast. Yeah, that sounds great. We should we should do a motives of credibility uh, discussion. Um, I told you we would stop at like 35 minutes. We are already 10 minutes over, but I'd like to do one more thing before you go. Uh, and I think it'd be kind of fun. You have this chapter at the end called Answering Common Objections. I don't want to go through each one, but how about this? How about I throw you an objection and you have 60 seconds to give me a response to it and we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. And then, you know, if I have any- No, I'll pass. If Thanks, I, though. If, if, I have any, uh, if I have any follow-ups <laughs> from there, I will, uh, we'll, we'll dig a little deeper. Um, all right, here we go. Objection number one. What you are articulating in a Catholic- paradigm of scriptural interpretation is simply falling prey to what is really an infinite regress because if we need something to interpret to to sort of give us the interpretive or the authoritative key to understand scripture and you say that's the catholic church doesn't the catholic church then need some authority or interpretive key that gives it that authority or interpretive key to interpret scripture what do you say to that yeah, I actually wrote an entire article about this for Called to Communion. The very brief answer would be that um, we're talking about the difference, but <clears throat> sort of like the ontological difference between a book and a person, right? Because the magisterium is a, is a living authority in time, in history, right? It's something that is accessible. A book is a book is not. It's it's uh, it, you know the the New Testament canon was all the books you know are from the first century or for, maybe from the very beginning of the second century with the Gospel of John or um, Revelation, and then you know, recognized in the in the fourth century and fifth century at some ecumenical councils, it's done, right? There's there's nobody, none none of those people who wrote that are around to tell you what, you know, got the Matthew cannot tell you what he meant in his gospel, but the living magisterium is because it's an actual living organism can it can continue to have that conversation, right? So you say, well, I think Romans means this in the in the magisterium. Let's say at the Council of Trent right. in the 16th century, we'll say, um, no, actually, in that particular certain that interpretation is erroneous, and here's one that's correct. And maybe maybe you come back and say, well, what about this one? What about this other interpretation? What do you think about that? And then the magisterium can respond to that, right? So because it's a living organism, it's able to kind of have that dialogue and weed out false interpretations over time. Okay, uh, then that maybe leads into the next objection which is, okay, uh, got it. What you're saying is the word of God is a book. The interpretive thing is a, you know, the word of God is a book or a what? The interpretive thing is a who. But doesn't placing a who above the word of God actually subvert God's authority because you're elevating a someone over God himself? <laughs> That's actually, in, in a certain sense, an easier one for me to answer because, um the, the teaching of the Catholic Church in regards to the magisterium is that it's actually divinely originating. And so uh, whenever the magisterium of the Catholic Church pronounces on faith and morals, on doctrine, it acts on behalf of Christ himself, because that was a power that Christ gave to the apostles and, and you know, in particular to St. Peter. So um, we, it's not just like a, a bunch of fallible humans in human history. It's actually humans who have been given a particular charism. And, you know, for Protestants, like, like, my, like, like myself, when I was a Protestant, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like this guy in Rome has, you know, or, or this group of cardinals or bishops that periodically come together and in like a, a council once once or twice a century, they have some, this special charism that protects them from, from error. But once I was able to, once, once I heard the counter on that, which was, well, isn't that kind of what the new Testament is as well, right? Is that God gave a particular charism to the apostles. Um, and in some senses, maybe, maybe some people who weren't, I mean, we don't know who wrote the gospel of Hebrews, but Protestants and Catholics both assent to it as divine as, as scripture. Um, we believe that God gave them a charism 
to, to write that, uh, inspired by him, um, and that it's infallible. So the charism that the magisterium has is, um, well, it's not, <clears throat> it's not a one-for-one, one, but it's analogically uh, the, the same thing. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I found that argument persuasive. Yeah, I mean, I think if you and I started our own church, said, you know, this is now the church of, the church of Casey and Zach, and we are the authorities here, and anyone who has a Bible interpretation has to bring their interpretation to us for us to validate or invalidate that. Uh, that would certainly be uh, inverting the natural order and placing ourselves over God. But what you know, the Catholic paradigm does not, simply because, as you said, uh, it's not simply a bunch of random people who are sort of putting their own interpretations up over and above Scripture itself. It is actually... We have a high view of the church, obviously, right? So it's actually the Holy Spirit who is operative in and through the church, um, giving us the interpretive keys to understand God's direct revelation to us. So it's, a, it's an entirely different thing. Um, that that objection, if it is made in good faith, I think is really from a, a fundamental misunderstanding of, of Catholic ecclesiology. Um, how about the objection, though, that, uh, man, how can you say, Casey, that, uh, that Scripture isn't clear if God wanted us to understand scripture and clearly he does, he would have made it clear. Um, so are you saying that God is somehow not, not good because he didn't make it clear for us? Dang it. You got me, Zach. I'm going to have to go back to being Protestant. I don't know. I don't, I don't have to answer <laughs> that one. Just kidding. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah. And that, that is, that's actually an argument that a lot of Protestant um, scholars and apologists will make is that, um, you know, scripture is clear. God intends to be clear. Are you, are you accusing God of being incapable of speaking clearly? Well, no, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, it, um, uh, criticizing, uh, God's person. You know, if he, if he wanted every single individual person on the face of the earth to receive directly from him, divine, like divine interpretation, like a, a divinely approved interpretation of scripture, I suppose he could do that if he wanted to. Um, but what if he didn't? What if he doesn't want to do that? What we're, yeah. what we're doing in in that objection is more or less um, we're placing our own interpretation about what God should or shouldn't do and demanding he operate that that way, right? It's because he could just as more just as easily have said, well, actually, I would prefer that there be an intermediary authority that serves to um, tell people what divine revelation is and then what it means. And then, I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, that's exactly what you see time and time again, right, is people serving that role. Moses served that role for the Israelites when they came out of the uh, out of Egypt. Um, and uh, and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, right, prophets and, uh, and, and sometimes um, uh, yeah, people like Samuel and Isaiah, yeah. right, they're serving that sort of intermediary authoritative role. Um, so at least the trajectory of scripture seems to be one of um, having these intermediary interpretive authorities. So I guess the, the, my counter to the Protestant would be what's different in under the new covenant that you think that that thing is all of a sudden gone away. I mean, that, that, that would be, that, that would be, I, I would want, you know, strong evidence to support that claim besides just, you know, quoting Jeremiah and saying that now he's written the law upon our hearts. Well, I mean, sure, but maybe that's just more of an extension of the this, this sanctifying process and, and yeah. drawing us deeper into community rather than, uh, erasing the, inter the the need for an interpretive authority. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, one, fi one final one. This is the last one. Um, so you say this to a Protestant and they come back to you and say, well, then I would say to you, what's, what's different under Catholicism? Because you were just telling me that my Protestant denomination is one of 40,000. But I look at you Catholics and yeah, you all say you're under one roof and you all say you will follow the Pope, but my friend goes to this Latin mass on the street and he just refers to the Pope as Francis or Cardinal Bergoglio. And then this guy over here on my right, he invites me to mass and says that I can come have communion with him if he wants, because he doesn't really believe it's transubstantiation or it is the actual body and blood. He said he rejects transubstantiation. Um, so you Catholics seem pretty divided too. So how can I accept your interpretation of scripture? So I don't think we should downplay the the reality of the fact that there are serious divisions within the Catholic community, and it's something to be mourned, and it, it, it it's something that we have to kind of really really face um, and, and and mourn. Yeah. Um, that said, the Catholic Church, <clears throat> at least from a if we're looking at it paradigmatically and comparing Catholicism to Protestantism, Catholicism has a principle of unity, 
which is the magisterium. So those individual churches or um, Catholic priests who are doing things that um, are out of step, uh, misaligned with what the magisterium has taught, um, and uh, and has and has answered further questions to uh, to clarify, um, they are they are uh, they're operating outside of what the church has formally taught. Um, so so there's that for one, and then secondly, what I would say is even a lot of the divisions um, within the Catholic Church, which from the outside can seem very acrimonious, look. Um, even a, a, even a priest who may, you know, if I have an interaction with him, I go, wow, like some of the things he says, they kind of sound heretical. They don't really sound like that's yeah. what the Catholic church teaches. That doesn't necessarily undermine his ability to perform the sacraments, mm-hmm. right? That doesn't undermine his ability to say the, to say the mass legitimately. Now, granted, if he starts doing weird things with the mass that violate what the church teaches about, you know, proper form and matter, um, and where the liturgy is supposed to be performed, if he starts like handing out Dorito chips instead of, um, bread for, for the body of Christ. Yeah. And yeah, we've got a, we got a problem. Um, but you know, a, a lot of these differences, um, they, uh, they, they may, they may, they may seem identical to what's happening in Protestantism, but there still remains a, a certain unity even within, you know, the, the broad tent of Catholicism from rad, ta- rad trads to people who are, you know, very liberal and, and maybe, maybe doing things that are approaching, um, you know, liturgical abuse. Okay, no, that's a that's a great response. I love how you uh, you don't shy away from the the very real realities uh, of division in the Catholic Church. It is sad, uh, but it does not at the same time undercut the, our our claims to the magisterium and the magisterium itself. So I think it's a great response. Um, okay, uh, Casey, thanks so much for joining us today. We are definitely over time now, more than twenty minutes. But I definitely also want to encourage people before we do go uh, to pick up a copy of your book, The Obscurity of Scripture. They can find it wherever books are sold including on Amazon, if you have to do business with uh, that, uh, that heinous uh, e-commerce giant. The preference uh, is that you buy it directly from Emmaus Road Publishing. So go to EmmausRoad.org and try to buy this book. Um, if you buy it, really anywhere you buy it, regardless where you buy it, but especially if you buy it on Amazon, also please go to Amazon and leave Casey a review, preferably a five-star review. Um, but it's a I think people who publish books uh, now know this. Casey was sharing with me before we started recording. That is one really, really great way that you can help uh, uh, authors by just reviewing their book on Amazon. You know, like it or love it uh, or hate it, and I hate it. Uh, Amazon is now, you know, it's it's the number one destination in the world by far for buying books, and so it's the place where people get their book recommendations. The book lists uh, and and recommendation algorithms in Amazon really matter uh, and affect how widely a book uh, can reach people. So please go review the book on Amazon after you read it and uh, and let people know how they should pick this up as well because it is a very good volume that dives into a lot of stuff. And Casey, I'm very, very appreciative of you joining us today to talk about it, but also very appreciative of you writing this because this is a book that certainly needed to be written. So thanks so much for taking the time to do that and for joining me. Uh, what's the next book up on your, up on your plate? Are you going to write another one sometime soon? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> there's there's a there's no pan, global pandemic True. on the horizon. I think that's going to give me an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, God willing, there, that will never happen again. Um, but I am actually slowly writing another book, um, and it's going to be a reflection on the seven last words of Christ, and um, a little bit different from how that's been covered by uh, other treatments that have been done by like Saint Robert Bellarmine or Father Richard John Newhouse. Um, Fulton Sheen did one as well, but the one I, I want to write is looking at um, the seven last words of Christ as a template for how to die well. And uh, my thinking there is that I've had a lot of close relatives, <coughs> excuse me, over the years, including my father, um, just at, we're actually, gosh, in two weeks, it'll be the 10 year anniversary of my father's death. And the seven last words of Christ served as such an important um, uh, help to me as I reflected upon his death and then de- the death of some other close loved ones. And one of the things I realized the more that I prayed and, and thought about them was that, you know, if, if we're going, if we're going to work under the assumption that anything Christ did is probably the best way a human could, could ever possibly do something, then that also would extend to the way he died. Yeah. The way that he died was probably the best way a human could ever die. So I would imagine those are lessons that could be applied for, for us as we think about our death. That sounds kind of, I don't know, morbid, but no, it's, by it's expo- what I want to argue about, by an extension of that is that if it's the, if these are the, this is the best way to die, you know, looking at the seven last words and what they communicate about how he viewed his own death and communicated that to the world, then it's also the best way to live. 
as well is uh, is in light of the seven last words. So that's the goal. Um, and the way that I'm doing it right now is uh, I'm a contributor at the New Oxford Review, which ironically enough is a former Anglican print publication that has been Catholic, um, I want to say since maybe the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, in the column I do for them, every other issue, I'm reflecting on one of the seven last words. So the goal is hopefully next year I'll, I'll have completed that. And uh, I talked to Scott Hahn about it already, so he's um, he's uh, he, he he's he's willing to consider it. So hopefully we'll get a good publisher for that one as well. Great. Well, he he recently wrote a book you're probably aware of called Hope to Die, which is really about you know how to how to die well and how death fits into the economy of salvation and God's plan for us. So yeah, it sounds like something that would definitely be up his alley. I'm glad that he's uh, he's supportive. Well, great. Yes. Yeah, I review that one. Yeah. Um, Casey, thanks so much for joining us. We are officially. 25 minutes over time now so uh we will end it here but i really appreciate you coming on uh and uh you have an open invitation to rejoin the show whenever so uh yeah we'll look forward to having you back on again soon to my listeners uh make sure to go read and buy the book review it on amazon and go check out casey's work uh, elsewhere all around the web as well he's featured all over the place the federalist new oxford review first things you can find him uh, in many of my favorite spots to read so go check out more of casey's work Uh, And until next time, God bless you.